source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Again, from First Peter, it's toward the back of your Bibles. If you uh, have the Pew Bible, we invite you to look at that and keep it open because we're going to be looking at details from the Bible. This is on... Uh, page 1014, 1014, First Peter. And we urge you to keep a Bible open because what we say is, is from the Bible. We're all about learning what God has said. We regard this as God's Word itself. Oh, y'all still need to do that? Okay. <laughs> da 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 <laughs> So I'll continue to talk. Um, so uh, we, we will be looking at particular uh, phrases. We'll be looking at connections. And if you have the Bible open in front of you, it's going to help you a whole lot as uh, you try to understand what we're, we're saying. I had a, uh, years ago when I was speaking at my home church, the church I was raised in, and it had a series of... Uh, ministers in that tradition that were a bit different than our tradition, so that uh, in this series of messages I gave, after the very first one, this lady came up to me, rather surprised and gratified. She said, I like what you do. You, you teach from the Bible, you know? <laughs> which tells you what was happening, you know, otherwise. But that's what we try to do. We, we also encourage you along the lines of what is said about the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Uh, whereas Paul had been thrown out of Thessalonica, he gets to Berea and it says, They were more noble than the ones before because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And... He doesn't commend, he doesn't say, well, hey, I'm the apostle. If I tell you, that's that. You don't have to search the scriptures. But he loved that idea. He thought, Luke says, that was a great thing, that they would search the scriptures to find out if these things were true. And then the idea that then they would believe those and act on them. So we encourage you to look at the scriptures, to compare what we say and, and uh, see if these things are true. See if this is what God indeed has said to us. So we, we read last week, verses beginning with chapter 1, verse 22 through 2, verse 3, about the Word of God. And we're going to consider this week the worship and next week witness. Those three things are tied around the idea of priesthood. That's why the title, what? Me, a priest? Odd language that each of you are considered priests. I'm not the priest. Some traditions have, you know, the one guy is the priest and he's called the priest. 
That is not our uh, understanding of the word. We all are priests. You're just as much a priest as I am. No more, no less. And as priests, we have this responsibility to the word, as we saw last week. We have a glorious responsibility in worship. And as priests, we have a responsibility, as we'll see next week, in witness. These, these things are our joy, our privilege, our responsibility. So the word in worship as we embrace our God, as he speaks to us and we praise and give ourselves to him. And this turns itself out in witness to the world. And in a sense, that's the whole of our lives. Hearing this God, giving ourselves to this God, and then spending ourselves lavishly for a lost world because of our fellowship with God. So, verse 4. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now this naturally spills into our witness, uh, which is dealt with here, but You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God's holy, infallible word. May he bless it to our understanding that we would live it out in our lives. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you. We praise you for what you've made us to be. Made us to be your people. We thank you that you are a sure strong hope for us, a foundation that will never fail. Lord, may we see more of your glory and give ourselves more zealously to worship you in all of life. Bless us, Lord. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Now, one question could come up. Why are we in First Peter when we're talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, the Sunday uh, before, this Palm Sunday before Christ was crucified on that Friday. Uh, So it really revolves around this idea of a cornerstone that is chosen and precious on God's part, but this stone that was rejected by the Jews themselves, by and large. There are many Jews that did believe, but... Most of the Jews did not. 
And what this week is about is the slow unfolding of the rejection of the Jews of Jesus. Because we know that this entrance into the city full of praise and honor is not is not at all a picture of what's going to happen once he gets into that city. The final unfolding of the Jewish rejection of Christ occurs this week. Their final uh, rejection and uh, of him uh, unfolds to the point of paying Judas money so that they can uh, find Jesus and then bring him into custody and instigate his death. So that's part of the irony of, of his coming into the praises of these people is that he's coming into his death and these same voices would shout out, uh, curse him. Now, let's look then at this incredible irony that is brought to bear in their rejection of him. The Jews rejected Jesus because for them, of course, there's no way possible that this could be the Messiah. There's no way in the world that this could be the Messiah, the one who's come to defeat our enemies, the one who's come to bring political rule to us and to get us released from the Romans so that the kingdom would be ushered in and we would be the ones who reign in the world. Far from it. He was cursed on a tree. He was killed by the ones he's supposed to defeat. He cannot be our Messiah. We reject him wholeheartedly, especially because he hung on a tree. It's stated in Deuteronomy, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. He clearly was cursed of God. So, absolutely he's not Messiah. He was rejected by the God he professed to to believe in and to follow. Uh, He is not Messiah. And of course, for them, they dealt with that. They saw that the followers were scattered like rabbits. They know that one of them we heard was even in a around a fire uh, denying him. That was taken care of. We have put this thing to rest. It's kind of like yesterday when our kids were coming. Our uh, kids were bringing their children over to a birthday party. Uh, in the back, Harper, the little three-year-old was given a bottle just to help feed the newborn, Cohen, okay? So she gives, gives her, Melly gives her the bottle because she can reach it and she can just give the, him the bottle. So he takes the bottle for a couple of minutes because he was crying. And then he finishes enough of the bottle so he goes off to sleep. And Harper says, well, that worked out well. <laughs> Three-year-old assessment of the situation. That was good. That was work. That worked out well. And that's kind of how the Jews were thinking at this point. Okay. Brushing their hands off. That worked out well. We took care of business. That's over. Except that what it says in verse seven, right? Except that one of the greatest ironies, one of the greatest turnarounds, one of the greatest reversals Is stated here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whoa. You know, it's it's like this stone and they throw this stone away. It's not going to be a part of the building. It's in the trash heap. It's done. Let's move on. And yet they turn around and that's the cornerstone. 
of the building that God is constructing. That's what's in this passage. And that's why I think it has everything to do with what was happening that week. That in the very rejection of Christ, he was being established as the Christ. In the very evil brought against him, he's bringing about the birth of his kingdom. He's bringing about the establishment of his kingdom. He is bringing about salvation for his people even as those who are called His people reject Him. God loves irony. He loves it. He loves turning the tables like this. It's like what Peter said at the end of his great sermon, after the Spirit had been poured out in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, He says to them, and after he enlarges and explains uh, what God has done in Christ, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's basically the same thing that's been said in verse 7. This one whom you crucified, that is, the one who the builders rejected, He has made him, God has made him Lord and Messiah. He's made him the cornerstone. So this this passage brims with the amazing act of God in the midst of what seemed to be weakness and suffering. And all along, God is bringing about his sovereign will for his people. But the passage then brings us to three things I want to discuss. First is a certain security because of this one. A certain security. Because as he says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. It's, it's almost with the full knowledge, I'm coming to one who is rejected by men. Right? I have full realization that in history, this is a man rejected. This is a man hated and despised. Yet I'm coming to him because he's chosen and precious. There's this knowledge of this irony that's built into this man. So we have to know why is he rejected, but why then is he chosen and precious? Why would I put my trust in one so rejected? That's the feel of even the one you come to. You come to him. But in the sight of God, he's chosen. He was chosen to do this work. It's interesting in Isaiah chapter 53, which we think is a statement in the Old Testament predicting the coming of Christ and his suffering. He says this in verse 4, We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's how we looked upon him. Smitten of God, afflicted of God. In other words, he's cursed of God. End of story. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his stripes we are healed. You see, he says, we we saw him cursed of God. And as Paul says in Galatians 3, he was cursed of God. But not because... It's simply, he was cursed of God. 
who's cursed of God on our behalf. And there's the here's another terrible, tragic irony. To reject him because he's cursed of God when that cursing is because he's saving you from the curse of God. Could there be a more a greater tragedy? To reject him as the one cursed of God when he bore the curse so you wouldn't bear the curse of God. And so the very thing that the reason that you would reject him for is the very reason you should praise him and come to him and receive him. Because it was for our transgressions as the writer of, uh, as Isaiah says. And Isaiah later says, uh, indicating further God's vindication of this servant who dies on behalf of his people. He says later in verse 10, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Does that sound like cursed of God? No. Blessed of God. Blessed of God. Why? Because he was willing to be cursed by God for our sake. Therefore, he's the one blessed of God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Here's God announcing, look what a glorious thing my servant will do because he bears their iniquities. He will make many righteous. This is God rejoicing in his work that he's going to do through his servant. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He will be a conqueror. He'll be a king ruling over all things because he was willing to be cursed for my people. Gosh, the one who was rejected by man, this stone rejected was nonetheless the chief cornerstone, chosen and precious. You think of the Father saying uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration and saying at the baptism of Christ, this is my beloved Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. His delight in His Son. He delighted in His Son even as He was bearing His Son's wrath, His Son's righteousness and submission and love that perfectly manifested the Father's love was a delight to His Father. He saw no evil in His Son even as He bore our evil. So, He says in verse 6, I'm laying this stone Chosen and precious. And this ties in with verse 4, right? You've come to him. You come to him uh, rejected, but chosen and precious. So this verse 6 is speaking of the same thing. I'm laying this stone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And you see, he is shamed. He is rejected. He's hated. He is ridiculed, misunderstood, mocked, blasphemed. Yet even for this one rejected, you will not be ashamed if you believe in him. This great paradox to believe in this Christ. It's a great paradox. You're kind of risking everything to believe in him. You talk about going out on a limb. You mean you want me to go out there with this rejected, hated, ridiculed one and think it's going to hold me up? (laughs) Yes, you'll not be ashamed if you go out there. You'll not be ashamed if you put all your trust on this one 
who was rejected. Because He is the Lord and Redeemer. And He is Messiah. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's folly to the Gentiles. See, the Jews stumble over this one who would suffer. And the, and the Gentiles ridicule him. It's a folly. It's, it's an offense to them. But to those who are called, Jews and Gentiles, brought from both sides, okay, both peoples, Jew and Gentile, he's the power of God and wisdom of God. Because we see in his bloodied form the amazing beauty and glory of a God who would sacrifice himself even for his enemies in order to redeem them. That's what we see in the blooded form of Christ. And when you see that, that you can see, think, oh, I see why they reject him. And I see how worthy he is not to be rejected. How worthy he is to be received. No matter if people are blind to his beauty. No matter if they can't see the sun shining in all its glory. Breaking out on the horizon in all of its beautiful colors. No matter if they can't see it. I see it. I see his glory. I see the beauty of a God who would accomplish this and do this for me. So the very thing that the Jews rejected him for is what other Jews in that day adored him for. And they were the original Jews for Jesus, right? They were the original Jews that brought this gospel to us Gentiles because they saw His glory. They were not of those that rejected Him. But they came to Him and found out, you will not be ashamed if you trust in this one. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be brought into the presence of God. He'll fill you with your spirit. Your life will be fixed upon Him and no longer upon yourself. So there's this certain security, paradoxical, ironic, but it's, it's funny because the tenuousness of it that he's rejected is the very strength of it, see? It's the very strength of it because he's rejected because they don't understand the glory of his love. Well, this passage also speaks of the powerful presence of our worship. There's the certain security of our worship, that we'll not be ashamed, that we come to Him and rest in Him. We have a solid foundation. And we know in that too that, before I go to that second point, that if He is so severely rejected by God and cursed by God on our behalf, that if I trust in Him to die for me, He has borne my curse. That's Paul's argument in Galatians 3. He has borne the curse. There is no longer a curse for us. And ultimately, the curse will be removed from the whole earth. And we can participate in the removal of that curse in the whole earth as God renews the earth in that final day. This death removes the curse upon God's people. It removes the curse for you and me. His rejection is your security, you see. It's not a reason to do away with Him. His rejection is why you should trust in Him. Because if you'll trust in Him who was was cursed of God, you will be accepted by God. So then the powerful presence. During this time, the, the, the Jews who believed were 
And, and those God-fearing Gentiles who were attached to the synagogue were rejected and cast out of the synagogue and cast out of the temple. And we're told, of course, that you no longer are part of the people of God. You're no longer part of the worship of God. And think how powerful this is that he says, well, that may be their opinion of what has happened. And they may think that they've put you outside the fellowship of God's people and they put you outside the worship of God. But let me say this, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. That's what you are. They think they're keeping you out of the house of God. You are the house of God. That's just so powerful and glorious. They think they're putting you outside of the people of God. But you're the very thing God is building. And you are living stones. That carries the idea of resurrection from chapter 1. That we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're the resurrected ones. The life of God is in you. This Yahweh has not put you away from Himself through their vain attempt to do so. This Yahweh dwells in your midst. He's given you His Spirit. His life is in you. Your living stones come to this living stone. You're made like Him. You are the temple. It says in Ephesians 2 that we're being built into a spiritual house, a temple, and the chief cornerstone is Christ. So God is building His house with Christ as the cornerstone. And we are living stones in that new house. This means if we're the house of God, if we're this spiritual place, this temple, then God is present to us. God is among us by His grace, not because we deserve it. He is in us. He is, in the words of the covenant again and again, He is with you. He is with you. He attends you. He attends us especially together as we minister together, as we fellowship together, as we worship together. We constitute His temple. He says in John 14 that the Father and I will make our abode with you, our permanent dwelling place with you. We will abide in you and with you. And it means he's present to bless us as king, as the resurrected one. He's all powerful in his blessing. There's the picture in Ephesians 2 of us being dead in our trespasses. And it says he raised us up in Christ so that we have a whole new life, a whole new resurrected life. That's why we're living stones. And this means new perceptions of His glory because the temple is the place where He shows Himself. The temple is the place in the confession of sin and the call to worship and the benediction and the prayers and uh, praises of God and the preaching of His Word where He makes known His glory in His temple. We should come to expect it. This is where we get a new awareness of Him, a new a deepening impact of His glory, where He grabs more and more of us for Himself. More and more of our emotions and motivations, our desires and our purpose, as He brings us more and more into glad adoration and joy and a surrender of ourselves to Him. We're the living temple of His presence where He manifests His beauty and glory. We should come with expectation that He's going to do that for us in all parts of the worship, in all the gatherings of the people of God. 
See yourself as living stones. See yourself. We are the spiritual house of God. We haven't earned it. We couldn't ever do anything to get this. God decided to make us this. And of course, as we anticipate next week, the temple shines out its glory. That's why we are the light of the world. Because we are seeing the glory of Jesus. And that's what transforms us. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we're gazing in a mirror, as in a mirror, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, and we are being transformed into the same glory. So there's the picture that occurs in worship, seeing more and more of His glory and being transformed more and more into His image, which brings us to the second or third part of this. There's certain security, this powerful presence of God. And finally, the submissive sacrifice of His people. The submissive sacrifice. Again, they would be told, you've been cut off from the worship of God. You're removed from the synagogue, you're removed from the temple, and you're removed from any contact with the priests. Who, as you know, make sacrifices daily. And once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. You're cut off from all of that. You have none of that. And then he says, no, not so. You are the holy priesthood. You. And he uses that word holy, which is used only of the temple, uh, and the things that surround the temple, and the, the need for constantly being holy. And, and God is so holy, only the high priest can come into his presence once a year in what is the picture of God's throne room. And now Peter is saying, you offer a spiritual sacrifice as priests in the very throne room of God itself. Made acceptable through Jesus Christ, he says here. That is why what the priests could only do in a representation of the Holy of Holies once a year you have access all the time because you are priests made acceptable through Jesus Christ. Amazing that they would say, you're cut off from this, not knowing that what we've been brought into is something they couldn't imagine, that we've been brought into the intimacy of God. And as priests then, we, he says, are offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices through Christ. And the point I want to make here is that all of worship is pictured under the term sacrifice. All of worship here. It's a, it's a word for the whole of what we do in worship. Which means that it sees the time that we spend here and all of our prayers and our praises and our hearing of God as one act of giving ourselves up to God. Giving all that we are up to God. All of our praises, all of our honor, all of our desires, all of our future, all of our purpose, all of our mission, everything in our life. We give it up to God. We say, we are yours. In the Old Testament, in Samuel, it says, rebellion is as divination and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. And so submission is the glory of worship. The glory of worship. That's why in Isaiah 57 he says, I dwell with those who are contrite of heart. In other words, those that are broken, that are giving themselves up to me. I dwell in their midst. I give myself to them lavishly. 
That's why in John 14, Jesus says, those who obey me are the ones who love me. And those who love me, my Father and I will manifest ourselves to them. We will dwell with them. He dwells with those who are doing this with their lives. And He's the one that brings that about in us. It's not just something we can work out and make happen, push a button, do the right thing. He makes you into a worshiper like this. He accomplishes this so that you become this holy priesthood, offering yourself up to Him. So that the core of all worship is a glad surrender of ourselves to God. Like the angels who literally stand there before God, just waiting for the Word. You know? You you get that picture that they're just waiting. Tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. I'm there. I'm there. You know? That eagerness. And that's some of what we mean when we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we obey you like the angels do. Bill Lug was showing me a couple of whippets that were uh, chasing some things as they do so quickly. And dogs are, are, you know, you hate to have to go to a dog sometimes, but you can learn great lessons from animals. We we knew a, a poodle. Uh, we knew a poodle, like we knew a guy, you know. But we, uh, the the master would put a dog treat on his paws, and he would he would lie there on the uh, on the floor, and he had these delicious dog treats on his paws, and he'd be sitting there looking at his master, and he'd say, "Not yet, not yet." He'd pause, he'd pause, he'd pause. No, not yet, not yet. Okay. <laughs> They were gone. You know, he's like, like an anaconda striking. You just didn't see it. You know, it's just gone. Did you suck them up or what? How did you do that? You know, and even fetching, you know, or dogs, you know, catching frisbees. They're how fixed they are. And and I would take in this analogy or this illustration the frisbee to be the command of God. You know, and I just want to know which direction, how fast I'm going to get it. You know. I'm there. And, and at that point, that's all they're thinking about, isn't it? It's all they're thinking about. What's the move? Where is it going? I'm going to get it. Because of their devotion. And of course, they love the thing itself, but it's because they're devoted to him, to her, their master. And that's to be us. That can be us. I want to encourage you. That can be you and me. Because God makes us into those kind of worshipers. He makes us into a priesthood. What are priests for? They're to offer sacrifices. What's the essence of that? It's giving myself up to God. Lord, what would you have me be? How would you have me think? How would you have me treat my husband, my wife, my children, my parents, my little brother, my big sister? How would you, Lord, want me to treat them? Lord, take hold of me. Lord, take me. That's the essence of all worship. Every day, that's the essence of our worship. Because we're priests offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. And so, Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that by the power of the Spirit, we will see the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He prays, doesn't he, for life-changing insight to the beauty of Christ's love. Um, I've just read this book called The uh, Madonnas of Leningrad, and it's a, a novel 
And this woman recalls what happened when she was 12 years old. And she first went to the Heritage Museum in uh, St. Petersburg, now St. Petersburg, then Leningrad. it was Her uncle brought her here for the first time shortly after she came to live with them. She had to come live with her uncle and aunt. It was the day his wife, or her uncle's uh, wife, went to the hospital to deliver their first child. Rather than following the old ways, leaving his niece with the women while he went off with the men and got drunk, he decided instead to bring her with him to the museum, saying they could both pass the time better in educational pursuits. She was bitterly disappointed because she was very interested in finding out all the, you know, cool things that happened when a baby was born, okay? So she was bitterly disappointed to have to go to the museum. But she said, even now, she can still recall her shock, how shallow and fast her breath came as she first walked through these guilt rooms, how each new hall opened dreamlike onto still another room. The walls were crowded with the faces of stern old men and young women. Her uncle seemed not to notice what she saw. He droned on about acquisitions and restoration and who knows what else, while all around them angels fluttered in turbulent skies and serene Madonnas gazed down as they passed. And the landscapes, one after another, shimmering with light, each frame a portal into a fresh world. Her head swam, dizzy, ecstatic, saturated with color. She was 12 years old, and this was her first taste of passion. I think it's a beautiful picture of what we want to see in Christ. And what's interesting about this book is it's told from the point where that woman was now old and had onset Alzheimer's and she was forgetting everything around her, but she never forgot that vision. She never forgot those pictures. Just like some people with Alzheimer's, you know, music goes to a different place, this beauty that's still in them and they can't remember anything, even who their relatives are, but they can still sing songs. It's like glory has been captured in their hearts. And that's... That's what the Word, that's what the unveiling of Jesus can be for us as we form the temple of God. And God comes among us to show His glory. May He do so to His glory and honor. Let us pray. Lord, we praise Your name. You have made us a people. You have made us a spiritual house. And You manifest Your powerful presence among us. You make us a priesthood which we offer ourselves up to you. All of this, Lord, because there is this glorious security that we can rest the whole of our lives knowing that one who would sacrifice so much for sinners is trustworthy to the max. We can push all of our life onto his shoulders, all of our worries and concerns and difficulties and trials and sins onto His shoulders. And He will ultimately, both now and in that final day, save us from every aspect of the curse that has come upon this world because He bore the curse for us. Lord, there is no other. There is no other. No other Savior. No other King like You. No one. May we worship you. May we gladly give ourselves up to you. A glad obedience, a happy submission, because you are trustworthy. Bless us, Lord. 
And we thank you that you will. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?